and uh, and we we're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. So usually just takes a second or so, and I start to see people file in. But I sent out an email a couple of days ago, and another one this morning, reminding people that uh, that you were coming to join us here today. And so I can see that people are starting to appear. Great. Where are you today? Where am I? I'm in my home office in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Oh, okay. I, I was in Virginia a couple of weeks ago to catch the auto train down to Florida. Took my kids. Oh, cool. Yeah. Lorton, Lorton, Virginia, I think is where it originates from. Yes. So, all right. We got people coming in. So I'm going to get things rolling here and we'll be right back. I'm David C. Barnett and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for thanks for taking some time out today and joining us. I am joined today with my guest, Joel Ankney who was a, a guest speaker in the Business Buyer Adventure Group coaching program a couple of months ago. And I wanted to have him come back uh, to the main YouTube channel so we, we could have a chance to, to ask him some more questions that everyone would be able to, uh, everyone will be able to learn from, but also that uh, people in the general audience will be able to ask questions of Joel as we get rolling here today. Um, I, I think I'd like to begin though, Joel, Maybe if you can uh, give an introduction, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into practicing law and and uh, and the type of work that you're doing most often. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, that's kind of a loaded question, how I got into practicing law, but we'll, we won't go too far into that. But um, I just needed a job. So law school looked interesting and that's where I went. I always wanted to do transactional work and I went to law school with that intention um, and after I graduated from law school, um, I practiced at some large law firms in, um, in Virginia for um, about 12 years doing transactional work, um, doing a lot of small to medium-sized business transactional work. 20 years ago, I left. I started my own solo practice. Um, six years ago, I published a book. I know we're going to mention that a little bit, but... Um, my primary focus is on small and medium-sized business merger and acquisition work. And um, that's what I spend. I'm not a trial attorney. I spend almost all my time just doing these um, SMB deals. Yeah. And and this is how I came to know you because I, I heard you interviewed on someone else's show and they, and you mentioned your book, Here's the Deal. I put the picture there up there on the screen yeah. uh, and, I, and I bought the book and I was really impressed with it because so often when uh, when we find books that talk about small business, uh, what they're really talking about is what I categorize as, as mid-market, where they're, they're talking about mm. businesses with several million in revenue. And when I use the term small business, I, I often mean main street businesses. So like the, the types of businesses that people most often interact with that you can imagine have you know, maybe, maybe they have some employees, maybe they have a dozen employees, but they certainly aren't doing millions and millions of dollars in revenue. And so when I read your book, it really resonated with me because you were talking about working on deals that were sort of in that same magnitude, that same size. 
Yes. I mean, um, and the book, the, one of the main purposes for the book was to provide a resource to those types of businesses, those types of business people, people either selling their main street businesses or people who are looking to buy those businesses. Um, last year, for example, I did, uh, I closed 22 transactions. Um, the range of purchase price went from $65,000 for a small um, martial arts studio to $55 million for a multi-location um, storage facility business. Uh, but most of my transactions are in the purchase price of about a million to $5 million. So that's, that's really who I'm working with every day. And uh, that's why I wanted to provide them with a resource to help them through those transactions. And, and when you're working on these deals, who are you most often representing, buyers or sellers? Um, I think um, I, I want to say it's probably slanted more toward the buy, heavily more on the buyer side than the seller side. Um, of the 22 transactions I did last year, um, I would say probably 15 of them were buyer side transactions and the other seven were seller side. Okay. And, um, you know, are there, is there any particular industry or anything, or does it run the whole gamut of, of all, all different kinds of things? I've sold all kinds of businesses, um, everything from small family-owned pizza parlors to um, uh, wellness businesses, e-commerce businesses, um, financial services businesses, fitness, uh, you know, just uh, construction businesses. Um, the transactions I'm working on right now are... Uh, you know, uh, publishing business, event planning business, um, a wellness business. So yeah, I, I mean, really, uh, the, the industry itself, I'm not, um, you know, I usually try, if I need to learn about the industry, I can do that as we're working on the transaction. So that's, it's been fun. I really, that's part of what I like doing the transactions is because I get to learn about the business in a way that helps us um, kind of manage the risk as we're doing the transaction. So 22 purchase sale transactions over the run of a year, would that be sort of your average workload that you've been doing for a few years then? Well, I've, I've been doing transactions for, um, gosh, 28 years, I guess. Um, when I first started practicing, I did something else, but we were in a recession. So uh, once the recession was over, we got out of that. But um, yeah, I'd say... 22 transactions in a year is is pretty typical. Um, the the price range that I I usually don't do deals as high as 55 million. Most of my deals are, you know, one to five million. That was just a kind of an anomaly last year. So far this year, my biggest transaction is about 16 million. But again, okay. it's an outlier. Now, now you're interacting with these deals from the point of view of an attorney, and so you're looking at the legal stuff and the paperwork. But have you noticed any kind of change in in what's happening with these deals given the rise in interest rates over the last year or so? Yeah, that's a great question. And I was thinking about that before we got on. So far, not really. Um, I have not seen, a, at least from my perspective, a slowdown in the number of people doing transactions. One of the things that I have seen over the last five or six years is the ability to um, obtain an SBA loan 
uh, small business administration loan has actually become easier than when I first started doing this, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so because of that, I, I am seeing a lot of people who are um, perhaps, you know, I mean, again, prior to say 2018, I had probably only closed, you know, five SBA loans in my career. But since then, I've probably closed, um, I don't know, 20 or 30 SBA loans. And, and, and that, so I've, I have seen that difference as far as the ability to obtain financing um, seems to be a bit easier on the SBA side, at least. But yeah. I'm waiting for that, I, that correction, right? Like you, you're waiting for that since interest rates are going up, I'm waiting to see how that's going to impact everybody. Well, I, I, I know that since I got into business brokerage, uh, the, the very first time I was uh, in the States doing training uh, when I was earning my certification and whatnot, that was the moment when I ran into more people on the American side who were doing deals. And I can tell you that at that time, uh, I don't know how difficult it was to get an SBA loan, but they certainly weren't financing up to 90% of transactions at that time. Right. So a lot right. of different things have changed with them over the course of time, not just maybe how easy it is to get, but the degree to which they're willing to offer leverage. Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things, I, I mean, I, I don't have any... Um, like evidence to support this. But my observation is, is that certain banks have gotten very good at uh, creating a process to make the SBA lending um, process a lot uh, faster, easier uh, on the borrower. And, and because of that, they're able to do a larger volume of those loans. Um, you know, what, um, what you mentioned, you know, closing an SBA loan, I, I just like to get some insight into how it's different for you from, from a contract and legal perspective to do an SBA loan versus any other kind of normal loan from a bank. The main difference is that the SBA loan is just going to require more documentation. Um, and also the SBA loan, uh, the lending requirements are going to perhaps impact the way that we structure the asset purchase. Um, so for example, in my book, I talk a little bit about earnouts and earnout agreements for post-closing, a way to kind of shift uh, part of the purchase price to post-closing performance of the business. Yep. In an SBA loan, the SBA won't allow an earnout agreement. So uh, as a result, we have to structure, if we want to have more of a performance-based um, uh, compensation after closing, we have to structure the transaction a little differently. And the way we typically do that is with a, a seller financing promissory note that has a forgiveness, um, some forgiveness terms and conditions in it if the business doesn't hit certain thresholds of revenue and things like that. But that that's mainly from my perspective, I have to make sure that, uh, because really what we're doing is we're closing two deals. We're closing a loan deal and we're closing at the same time a purchase. And I just have to make sure that the two dovetail together and the SBA has more requirements than a commercial lender does. Okay. The, we, we've got people piling in. We've got uh, Kevin here who's in Lakeland, Florida says, good afternoon. Hey, Kevin, thanks Great. for joining us here today. Uh, another question here from concise advice is curious. Um, how many uh, of those deals that you did um, were involving a business broker. 
Almost all of them. Um, and but all, almost I think in every instance, the seller also had their own attorney. Okay, so I saw that in the question. Well, would that? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, both parties in in the deal should obviously have their own attorneys. Do you do you yeah. meet a lot of people who want to do the deal with only using one? Um, I don't meet a lot of people, but I do meet some people. And um, I had an experience even just last week where I was representing a, a potential buyer in a transaction, and the broker. Um, wanted, didn't want really to have the lawyers involved. They wanted, it was a, it was a weird thing. And it was something that I never had really encountered, but the broker had a fill in the blank asset purchase agreement for a deal of approximately $2 million. And they simply wanted the buyer to fill in a couple of blanks and send them the asset purchase agreement. This was, um, and what they were, I think part of what they were doing was they were trying to have a bidding war with buyers. And so, you know, they kept pressing my client to do this, even though we actually had a letter of intent that had an exclusivity period in it. And they basically just said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to honor that. You know, you need to, and it has to happen this afternoon. All those are red flags to me, right? Those are, yeah. those are, um, and, and, you know, that's what I told my client. I said, I, I would advise you if you can't trust the broker to honor the letter of intent and the buyer, or I'm, I'm sorry, and the seller, then, you know, this is just, it's just a red flag of potentially what's going to happen down the line here. So you, I mean, you've worked on a lot of deals. You, you talk about things like ignoring a condition in the LOI as being a red flag. I, I think that makes pretty clear sense. What are some of the other common red flags that uh, appear from time to time for you that give you concern? Um, I think that uh, one that you've already mentioned is the idea of um, if a broker is involved. And again, I'd say 90% of my transactions have a broker involved and the broker doesn't want the attorney's to be involved um, for one reason, you know, they, they might say, well, the attorneys are going to muck everything up or slow everything down. And um, I mean, that, that is kind of a red flag. Usually we push through that one. That one wouldn't cause me to tell my client, Hey, don't do this deal. Um, but um, other red flags might just be, you know, as you, a lot of these red flags don't show up until you, we get into due diligence, right? I mean, when we get into due diligence, then we start to see, uh, if we see odd things, I, I remember working on one purchase where um, there was a line item on the financials for miscellaneous, and it was like $2.3 million for one year, a, a, an expense of, and, and what ended up happening is uh, they discovered that um, the bookkeeper inside the company had been embezzling. That was her line item for money that she was embezzling. And wow. so, you know, we, we actually did the transaction, but it, it, it ended up discounting the purchase price quite a bit. So, wow. I, well, I mean, if you got rid of the embezzler, the cash flow would improve immediately, wouldn't it? Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually had a similar thing happen where someone I helped someone buy a bar, and shortly after the purchase, the new owner 
who is much more of a systems kind of person, implemented a, a better inventory control system and quite quickly found someone who, who was involved in pocketing some cash. Wow. And it turned out the business was much better than they had initially thought when they made the deal. So, it, you know, these kinds of things can happen. Uh, and sometimes things you don't discover in due diligence can actually be a benefit to the buyer, I guess, in, in that kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are some of the common problems that come up with deal closings? Well, I think that, um, you know, I don't know if they're there. The challenges with closing a deal uh, involve the time that's necessary to work through a lot of issues. Um, and, you know, when when I think of closings, things that, that slow closings down are lenders and landlords, typically. So I'm closing a transaction later this week where we have four landlords involved who have either had to give my client, the buyer, a new lease or consent to the assignment of the existing lease to my my buyer. And, um, you know, for the most part, the landlords, it's not one of the things that they put at the top of their list, their to-do lists. Um, and and they, they have to do their own, they have to vet the buyer as well. And those things just take time. I think that people would be surprised to see one of my closing checklists because there could be anywhere from, you know, 50 to 70 items that I'm working on to, and sometimes I'm relying on third parties uh, to get things done, but there are a lot of moving parts. And I think that it's when we're dealing with third parties that we run into some issues typically that we have to resolve. Yeah. You, you, you've already mentioned, you know, loans and loan agreements and the documentation documentation they require. And now you're talking about landlords and things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, then there's the purchase and sale agreement. Um, when we talk about closing and sort of the legal work that goes into closing, you just mentioned 50 to 70 things. I, and on your previous uh, uh, visit with the adventure group, you talked about how you use a checklist um, I've, I've back in my broker days, I know I went to several closings with clients where sometimes there would be, you know, a few contracts for people to sign. And other times there would be a literal mountain of things that would have to be signed and sometimes spread all the way down a boardroom table. Right. Can, can you talk about some of the other things that can sometimes happen and just why it can create so much work for the attorney and maybe to show people why this isn't uh, you know, a, a one week kind of job oftentimes for most of these deals. Yeah. This is one of my favorite topics, frankly. Um, I, you know, the, the timeline necessary to go through the, the process is typically longer than most people anticipate. Um, I, I find it interesting that the, you know, the business people, spend a tremendous amount of time and effort on finding a target, you know, a buyer finding a target and then kind of, um, you know, analyzing different targets that they have and then deciding on the one that they want to pursue. And, And many times what I find is that once they sign the letter of intent, everybody kind of sits back and says, okay, the deal is done. And from my perspective, that's when the deal just gets started. Um, most of my clients hire me either right before they sign the letter of intent or right after they sign the letter of intent. Um, then once they sign the letter of intent, of course, we're into the due diligence period, and that might be anywhere from 30 to 90 days. 
my involvement in the due diligence period is typically pretty limited. Um, and we can, you know, talk about that. But then once we get through the due diligence period, um, we're going to draft an asset purchase agreement. And that's going to take some time too, because there's going to be a lot of back and forth. And this is when the buyer has said, yeah, everything looks good. I want to proceed. Then they're right. going to get you to actually do the work to make the deal happen. Exactly. Exactly. And there's going to be a lot of back and forth on that. Um, and then, um, and because they're important aspects of an asset purchase agreement that are in there to um, control risk and uh, especially from the buyer's perspective. We want to make sure that when we're doing an asset purchase agreement, that we're leaving all the liabilities with the seller and that we have a mechanism in there uh, for the, you know, for us to pursue the seller if there are problems after closing. But once that's done and we're talking about closing, we have a number of other legal documents that have to be uh, uh, created and then signed. Um, and some of them are just related to a, a legal document that actually transfers title to certain types of assets over to the buyer. So for example, a bill of sale is used as a title document, a title transfer document to transfer title to the tangible assets over to the buyer. So if, if we had a vehicle, we have a title document, right? But, but if we have computer equipment and inventory and things like that, we don't have a title document so we use a bill of sale to transfer that title. So a bill of sale is something, if there's a seller uh, financed promissory note, we've got to have that promissory note. That promissory note typically is also tied to a personal guarantee. So that's another separate document. And if there's a pledge or a lien that's that's uh, given on the assets to as collateral for the promissory note, that's a another document, a security agreement. Um, contracts are assigned using a separate assignment of contracts agreement. Leases are assigned using a separate lease assignment agreement. If, if a landlord needs to consent, there's a legal document for that. Um, if there's a non-competition and non-solicitation provision, most times we have a separate agreement for that post-closing. And there's a reason why we have a separate agreement. Um, if there's a consulting agreement for post-closing, seller services. we That's another agreement. If there's a escrow of some of the purchase price, for example, to handle uh, post-closing indemnification claims, there's a separate escrow agreement. There are corporate resolutions and certificates that have to be provided. Um, and then we haven't even talked about all of the financing documents. There's a whole going to be a whole separate package of, and, and I don't draft those, the lender uh, we'll draft those, but there will be a whole separate packet. And frankly, the financing documents can be a lot um, more, you know, a lot, there are going to be a lot more documents there. That's going to be the thickest stack of documents typically. And, and I would imagine sometimes too, in some of these deals, you may also be creating some new entities too, and all of the paperwork associated with doing that at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're, that's a very, really good point. I mean, uh, we're, we're typically always creating a new entity. Um, it may be one entity in some instances, I'm working on a transaction right now, where we're gonna create two new entities uh, to take one entity to take a certain type of assets and another entity to take another type of assets. And there's a tax purpose for that. So that I'm not and I would, an expert on. I would, imagine, I would imagine an asset protection strategy involved in that too, perhaps maybe. Um, I I think there there could be, but th this one is primarily driven by the the tax planning that's taking place. Okay. 
You, you mentioned, for example, in the asset ag- purchase agreement that you want certain clauses and certain protections. Mm-hmm. Are there any sort of deal breaker things from your point of view where if if they're not in, in that deal that you will tell your client, like, I would seriously worry about doing this deal because you're missing this really important thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um... When we're talking about important things from a buyer's perspective in an asset purchase agreement, um, we're we're focused heavily on making sure that one that we're my, my buyer is getting what they think they're getting. So we want to make sure the list of assets is comprehensive and detailed. Um, if a if a, if a seller is unwilling to provide a list of assets. That's a that's that's a yellow flag, I think. Um, when we talked before, we talked about an experience I had where a seller uh, would not provide a list of inventory, even though they claimed that inventory was worth I can't even remember, but it was like five or somewhere between five and eight million dollars on the balance sheet um, as of as the value for inventory, but they couldn't produce a list of inventory, and that was a yellow flag that became a red flag um, when we did a little bit more digging. And, um, and again, they were just unwilling to, to provide any sort of assurance that we were actually getting, you know, $8 million worth of inventory. And my client walked away at the closing table. I mean, he literally just said, if you can't provide this, we're done. So. um, Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I recall, when you told me that story last time we spoke, you then went on to say something and tell an interesting story about something you discovered <laughs> about the seller. Yes. I mean, because it, we had pressed for the inventory list for many weeks prior to closing, and we basically got stonewalled on that. Um, and so that, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what triggered my thought to try and do a little bit more research and diligence on the the individual sellers, um, the people who own the company that was selling the business. But as we did, we just did some quick Google searches on these individuals and we found out that they had um, several years, maybe I can't even remember, five or seven years prior to this transaction, they had settled, um, they had pled out basically on some criminal fraud charges uh, related to another business that they had had in the past. Um, so when they wouldn't provide the information that is really, I mean, an inventory list is customary, it's reasonable to ask for. And when they wouldn't provide that and then coupled with the um, their history, kind of their colored history, that's when my client uh, decided he didn't really want to take the risk. Well, you know, when when you talk about the the legal work to close a deal, there's also the legal due diligence. So so what would you norm? So let's say we've completed the due diligence phase uh, as far as numbers and everything that I'm looking at now. I say to you, yes, let's move forward. You're going to do some pretty basic checks on the company or the business and its status, and if there's different things outstanding. Can you describe what that legal due diligence often looks like? Sure. I mean, the we're going to look at. Yes, I'm going to go to the um, the state. The Secretary of State is going to have a website where I can search the business and I can see if they're in good standing, see who the officers and directors of the business are, um, 
and and you know I typically take a very quick look at the history. There's not a lot of information available in the Secretary of State's records, but what's public um, might clue me into search a little further. If I see some, you know, if I see some merger documents from a year ahead, you know, prior or something like that. A lot of times, what that does is gives me information that allows me to create questions to ask the seller. Um, you know, mm. tell us more about this. Tell us more about, we we saw this, um, but there's not enough information there for us to understand it. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, the I'm also typically going to do a, if I can, uh, in the public records, a UCC search. So I'm going to look at whether there are any liens filed against the assets. Because Again, I want to know who's out there so that we know who needs to be paid off at the closing. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, every once in a while, I'll run across a seller who won't want to tell us about something, uh, a liability that they have that that needs to be paid off at closing. Otherwise, that liability is going to essentially transfer with the assets itself themselves. Um other things that I'll look at are um, key contracts and leases to determine whether um, they can be, uh, for example, if, if they require the consent of the landlord or the other party before they can be transferred. In some instances, um, you know, for example, I'm dealing with a transaction right now where the the contracts don't indicate that they um, that they require consent to be transferred, but they give the other party the right to cancel the contract at any time. And so I've, I warned my client that, hey, you know, just so you know, if they don't like you after you buy the business, they can just terminate these contracts. They, they can all go yeah. away. So those are the types of things I'm looking for. And so and, and so doing due diligence on a business, of course, is doing diff is different than doing due diligence on a person. Like you mentioned before, right. doing some Google searches on that seller, um, you know, I, I actually had a client a couple of years ago that was that was looking at doing a business deal. And one of the things that came up was that this person didn't have a LinkedIn profile. They couldn't find them on Facebook, all these kinds of things. And it was a new person to the area. And I just, I thought, you know, it might make sense to have this person checked out. And they didn't. And then it turned out that this person was, you know, deceptive and 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 it cost them money. Um, and uh, they really should have spent more time investigating the individual. Uh, you've got a, a similar story that you can share about, you know, nefarious characters in this world of buying and selling businesses. Yes, yes. I mean, I I do. I mean, I I mine's a little different because I um, the transaction had already been closed uh, for about a year, and the buyer came to me and ask me if I would help him enforce some contracts against the seller because the seller was had become very upset um, about certain things after closing. And as I look through the documents and uh, I mean, this all happened for me in the course of one afternoon. I, I looked through documents that were delivered to me that afternoon. Um, and then I called the buyer and asked some specific questions the answers weren't satisfactory to me. So I actually um, declined to represent the buyer. I just, you know, and that for six months, I didn't hear another thing about it. And then um, actually was mowing my grass when the FBI called me 
and wanted to know if I represented this individual and what my experience had been with them. I told them my story and I asked them why. And they said, well, we've got him in jail right now because he has a pattern of um, purchasing businesses, um, financing almost entirely with seller financing, stripping all the assets out and selling the assets, collecting all the accounts receivables and pocketing all the money and then walking away and to leave the uh, seller to foreclose on a business that has no assets and no, you know, I mean, it's, it's been decimated essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, and um, so the first time I heard that story was around 2008 or 2009. I was at mm -hmm. in a training session in Ottawa and the trainer told us this story about um, the two members of a family that had done this many times before getting caught. And, uh, you know, I've made a lot of videos over the years about buying a business with no money. And, and one of the, the things that I often point out is that if a seller would let you buy their business, hundred percent seller finance, this is the risk they expose themselves to that. You could simply collect the receivables, sell the inventory, sell off the other assets and then run away. Right. With, with the money. Right. And, you know, people will often accuse me of creating this extreme example, but it's it's not. I mean, this is something that has happened to people before. Um, and and it's, it's why it, you know, as a seller, you if you're going to do some seller financing, you have to have your banker cap on when you analyze that buyer to look at them and say, you know, is this person really going to be a capable operator and and are they credit worthy and do they have the right experience, et cetera, for me to want to basically invest part of my money in helping them to acquire this business? I think that's a great point. And, and to take it one step further, I tell my sellers who are offering, you know, seller financing, you need to act just like a bank, which means all those things that you just said. And in addition, you need to ask for the same things a commercial lender would ask for, like a first position yeah. lien on the assets. A lot of times, if there's a commercial lender, you're going to get a second position lien, but you need a personal guarantee. You need a lien on the assets. You yeah. need, you know, the same types of things that any other commercial lender would would take. And if a buyer is unwilling to give you those things, that's a red flag. Well, and, and don't forget reporting. And this is something I've pointed out to many clients as well, is if you're going to hold a substantial seller note, don't you want to see monthly, maybe quarterly uh, P&Ls and balance sheets so you can keep an eye on the business? Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. quite frankly, the seller is often much more expert at how the business operates than the buyer is. And and I've actually had cases before in deals that I've brokered where the seller will start to receive reports from the buyer along with their payments every month. And the seller is the one that notices a problem before the buyer is ever aware and picks up the phone and says, hey, I've noticed this is happening. It, it probably indicates this is going on in the business and, and can actually be very helpful for these buyers because it it lets that seller kind of look over their shoulder and, and, and they're the ones that have all the experience in the business. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love that. Yeah. Um, so um, we talked about deal breaker conditions. We talked about uh, legal due diligence on counterparties. Um, just looking down my my list of questions here. Um, let me ask you this, Joel. Have Have you ever worked on a deal for a buyer on a contingency basis, meaning that if they didn't successfully buy the business, they wouldn't have to pay you anything? 
No, no, never done that. Ever heard of anyone doing that? Um, I don't know anybody personally who's done that. I think it's out there in the ether a little bit, like theoretical. Um, yeah. I have okay. people ask me that. Uh, you know, frankly, um, if I were if I were to take a contingency, you wouldn't like it. You would you would you wouldn't be happy with that. You know, like because it would be because the risk that I'm taking on would be high enough that I'd really, that have to be, really be worth my while. And and you wouldn't be, you know, why would you do that? Right. Why would you, why would you agree to give me a contingency that would maybe, you know, put, let's say $50,000 in my pocket where if I did it on an hourly basis, my fees would probably not be any more than 10 or $15,000. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense to me. Um, the, the reason why I'm asking is because people in the comments keep putting in there that, that supposedly there's an army of attorneys out there willing to, to help people do this stuff on these kinds of basis. And, yeah, and I, I don't think there is, I, I, to your point, I think it's just a notion that's kind of floating around out there. It's a, I, I've never run into anybody who does it. it. It does from an ethical perspective, I have to structure my engagement a particular way if I'm going to take a contingency. Um, I've only ever taken contingencies in the history of my practice for copyright infringement claims, believe it or not. Um, there, I, I had a some clients who were in the um, fine arts uh, uh, business and also good friends. And we had several um, kind of high profile copyright infringement claims. And I took those on a contingency. It's the only time I've ever done something like that. Um, well, and, and, you know, I've written about this before and I've said that, you know, if, if you're going to find a lawyer who's going to do this, it's probably one of your cousins, you know, or a good friend or, <laughs> you know, something like that. Right. Um, yeah. And um, <laughs> I mean, I, I would be I don't want to I don't want to like be um, critical of my colleagues at the bar, but I, I would be, you know, I would be surprised if somebody offered it. I mean, I, I get that question. I always answer no. Um, what I have done in the last five years is I will defer my fees to the closing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but if we don't close, you're still going to pay my fees. That's that's the way we're going to work it. Um, well, and that's actually pretty common because sometimes a buyer may want you to address your invoice to the company that they're acquiring. Yes, right. or um, in, in my experience, more common is they want to use the loan proceeds to to pay for my fees. Right, and so you know, one area of law that sees a lot of contingency billing would be something like personal injury, right? Right, and, and those those attorneys who are probably going to look at the case and based on their experience, they're going to judge whether or what they think the likelihood of the of the thing closing in the favor of their client would be. Right, and so for you to do it on a contingency basis, you'd have to make the same judgment. So let me ask you this, in your experience, how often do the deals not close after you started working on them? Well, I think that um, the if you asked me that question uh, and also asked me at what point during the, the transaction process do they not close, if we're at the letter of intent phase, um, I've had you know clients submit five or six different letters of intent during a 12 month period where, you know, none of them end up, you know, whether it's because they discover things during due diligence or they can't get the financing that they need for the transaction or something like that. So at at a letter of intent 
due diligence phase, um, you know, I, I see, I don't know, maybe 20% if I were to guess uh, based on my experience. If we get all the way through the asset purchase drafting phase and we're coming up on, you know, just a couple of weeks before closing, um, I've only ever seen, you know, recently and I've maybe lost two deals in the last 10 years at that point. So I think it, it, it really depends on where we are in the process. Um, uh, you know, if, we, if we're almost to closing, we're going to close typically unless something crazy happens. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you know, legal fees and, are one of the expenses that people are going to have to pay in order to get a deal done. And ideally, I mean, at least the way I coach people about this is you want to try to get over as many hurdles as you can before you start to get deeper and deeper committed into the process by, you know, having your attorney do things for you. So, so it makes sense what you're saying. The longer you're in this tunnel, the more right. certain the outcome should be become because the, the, the easiest things to derail the deal should be uh, maneuvered around earlier in that process. That's a, a wonderful way to put it. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, it, kind of the, the, you know, what follows on from that, from my perspective is that if you engage me, for example, to help you draft your letter of intent or review your, intent, and then you, uh, decide to terminate the deal during the due diligence period, you've only incurred a couple of hundred dollars worth of fees with me at that point. So it's not as painful as if we've gone through the whole drafting, all the documents, and we're almost ready to close, and then something weird happens. I mean, I, I, you know, I had a deal uh, a year or two ago where um, we got to the day of closing, and um, my seller, I was representing the seller, and my seller uh, had signed and delivered all the documents, and the buyer got cold feet and just said, I'm not going to do the deal. And, you know, we we went round and round with their attorneys. He was represented by a large law firm. And um, he eventually, after about two weeks of us pushing on him, he just said, you know, if you think you have a claim, you need to sue me because I'm not going to close this deal. And so um, he got sued. So not by me, but we hired another a trial attorney to, to sue him. I don't know what the outcome was, but, um, but, you know, it was a weird, that's a very odd and a, and a very unique experience. That's a big cliffhanger. You need to call that other attorney. Yeah, I do. I think they, <laughs> I, I, at one point, I think they were going to settle it. So I imagine it did settle at some point. Yeah. 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 Um, can you, I mean, you, you, you talked about uh, a, a few times about, um, you know, have sellers wanting to use the same lawyer and things like that. Can, can you talk about some of the common mistakes that you see being made because people are, are just being cheap and they don't want to invest in proper advice? Yes. I mean, I think um, for one, um, you know, trying to do it yourself, either because you do some Google searches or you find a, 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 a website online that sells form documents. I mean, there, there are plenty of those websites. Um, and you think that every, you know, one asset, there's it's kind of a one size fits all, one asset purchase agreement is going to fit every deal. Um, that's always going to create problems trying to do it yourself. Um, the idea of one lawyer is going to do everything and isn't, I mean, I'm in a deal like that right now where the broker 
hired a lawyer not to represent the seller or the buyer, but simply just to draft all the documents. And um, that's an odd, I mean, that happens more, more often than not, but the idea that there's just going to be one lawyer to handle everything is, I think, um, a little bit of a trap because that lawyer has to represent somebody typically. Um, and if the broker is representing the seller and they're also engaging the lawyer, it's typically going to be that the, the it may not be stated this way, but the, the, that lawyer is going to be the seller's interests. Um, I just received a whole slug of documents today where my client said, you know, the broker's lawyer sent these over and I already know they're a problem. Um, I think having your own lawyer is, is important. Um, you should have a lawyer that you are comfortable working with, um, who, I mean, I have clients who will say to me, I don't really want to pay you to draft the letter of intent, but will you look at the one that I draft before we send it out? And, you know, does that save them some money? Um, it, it might, um, but you know, it makes them happy. So that's good. Um, what else would I say is, well, well, what would be some of the key things that someone should be asking when they call around looking for an attorney? Cause I mean, people yeah. will often have an attorney in their life for family or real estate needs, but ob obviously this is different, right? So, it is different, so when yes. somebody is calling around and looking, you know, online or looking at ads and things, what, what should they be looking for in those initial conversations with potential candidates? Yeah, well, I mean, if you were in an automobile accident and you wanted to uh, have a lawyer represent you, um, you would definitely have a not only an idea of what type of lawyer, you know, what, what type of practice they should have, but you should also then, you know, once you narrow it down to a few attorneys, you should interview those attorneys to make sure they're a good fit for you, um, that they're going to take care of you. It's the same thing with a, an M&A attorney you're going to want to look at, you know, four attorneys who have that M&A experience. I mean, I can tell you um, exactly how many deals I closed last year, the industries that they were in, the purchase price. Um, you know, I can, I can give you all that type of information. So you can see that, um, that it, I have the experience and then you'll want to work, you know, talk with me to make sure that you get along with me that you think I'm going to be looking out for you that, that you think you can make suggestions to me that I'll listen to, um, you know, that I'm going to take care of you. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that you, you definitely want somebody who has experience doing transactions. Uh, one way you can, you know, an easy way to do that is to look at somebody's website and look at their, you know, if you, if you pull up their website and almost everything on there is about divorce and child custody, they're probably not the right fit. They probably don't have the experience that you need. Um, so I think doing a little due diligence like that, but also almost all my business comes from referrals. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I have CPAs around the, around the city who know me um, that I work with and they work with me. We have mutual clients together. Um, so it's always good, I think, to ask people that you trust from, a, you know, in your business community, um, could be your banker. You might ask your your loan officer, you know, who do you guys typically work with on these types of transactions? Or who do you see coming across your desk more often than not? Uh, you know, and I think that kind of information will help you, you know, find out 
And, and, and it can make a difference. And one of the ways I've seen it make a difference is that if you have, um, for example, a trial attorney, somebody who does primarily litigation work, their mm. approach to solving issues and problems is different from my approach, typically. They're much more adversarial. Um, everything's a fight. Um, there aren't as many, perhaps, you know, filters or tears. Everything is, you know, DEFCON 1 and, you know, everything's a, a, a huge fight. And that could impact your transaction. It could it could slow it down quite a bit. It could um, focus you on things that really aren't as relevant for the closing. Yeah. Well, Joel, I, I think uh, I think those are are great bits of advice for someone who needs to go out and find someone to to help with the paperwork on a deal. Um, for anyone that wants to reach out and find you on the on the internet, where should they be looking? Um, it's my name is right there at the bottom. If you just type in my name.com, no spaces, right? JoelLinkney.com. It'll take you to my law firm's website. And uh, as soon and as we're I'm finished, when, uh, and, and as soon as you're, as soon as we're finished here, uh, it takes a little while for me to be able to edit the show notes, but I'll add your website and your LinkedIn uh, link to the show notes here. So anyone who's listening uh, to the recording or whatnot, just go into the show notes and you'll be able to find Joel. And, and just a reminder for everyone, uh, Joel's book is called Here's the Deal. And um, there is a, an Amazon link to my Amazon bookstore. And I put this book into my bookstore. So if anyone is interested in finding the book or any of the other books that I've recommended over time that, that I've enjoyed reading, you'll find them in my bookstore too. And I'll put that link is down in the show notes as well. Um, and uh, this has been great, Joel. Thank you very much for coming today. Thanks, David. Thanks. I, I've enjoyed both of our conversations. I hope I hope I've given you something that'll help everybody. Awesome. Uh, we're going to say goodbye, and we're going to play uh, a, a message from today's uh, video sponsor, uh, and then uh, I'll, I'll see you in a few minutes. Special thanks go to today's video sponsor, Mark Willis of Lake Growth Financial. Mark helps people better manage their personal wealth and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people I've worked with over the years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find a playlist of all the interviews I've done with Mark and to learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up to arrange a conversation about what this solution might look like for you. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great 
episodes.